EMFs, how do they cause biological damage and even cancer? Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by a researcher, Dr. Paul Haro, who's a professor at McGill University in Montreal in the Faculty of Medicine. And he is going to help us answer that question because he's done some really interesting research to, to elucidate the mechanism. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. So to provide our uh, viewers with a uh, bit of your background, I thought it'd be best if you would elaborate on it and how you first became interested in this field and what, what your primary focus is now. Well, at some time, I was uh, trained as a physicist, and eventually I gravitated to a power utility and did a PhD there on uh, electrical power transmission lines. And in the course of working for the power utility, uh, I got interested in the health effects of power lines associated with their fields. And uh, I found that extremely interesting. I got involved in biology, followed courses in medicine, and became a, so to speak, a, a um, a type of different person from what my supervisors initially would have ex expected me to be. So that made life very interesting and somewhat difficult, but I became a specialist on the effects of magnetic fields on the human body over time. And eventually I went to the Faculty of Medicine uh, to try to protect health and the environment. Okay, good. So before we go into more specific details, I think it would be best if you could help us understand from your perspective the different types of electromagnetic fields. You know, basically, broadly, there's electric, magnetic, as you referenced, and it's one of your focuses, and then, of course, radio frequency. So perhaps you can expand on that, and then we'll, we'll delve into the, the focus on your, the magnetic component. Yes. Uh, even if you look at the literature, what you will find is that it tends to discriminate a lot between, say, low-frequency fields and high-frequency fields and microwaves and electric fields and magnetic fields. But actually, all of these fields have a lot in common. And in a sense, you can practically lump all of them in terms mm -hmm. of their biological action in the sense that it's true that frequency influences the effects, but basically they all proceed the fields by the same mechanisms. In other words, I could, using an electric field or a magnetic field, produce the same effect in a cell. And most higher frequency signals have enough low frequency components to have a lot in common with low frequency components. So the uh, practical aspect of this is that usually the fields uh, have an effect maybe in one application, but they are mirrored in other applications as well. So there's a type of great uh, unifying view that you can have about these fields. Yes, indeed. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Martin Paul's work, who's an investigator who also had uh, interviewed previously. <clears throat> and uh, he published a paper in 2013, but I think your work precedes his. But he, he essentially elucidated his version of the mechanisms, which is the voltage-gated calcium channels. But in, in that mechanism, he, he said exactly what you did in that it's pretty much 
all of the fields work through the same mechanism. They cause the same biological damage. So before we go into specific details, I'm wondering if you can give us your perspective and um, explanation of, of the fact that these this damage, and you and I both strongly believe that there's major damage of being exposed to excessive fields, is not due to thermal injury, which is what the, the experts experts in the field would have us believe. It's due to non-thermal mechanisms, and that's what Dr. Paul's described, and you have your version of what the mechanisms So, so can you elaborate on the non-thermal mechanisms? Yes. Uh, it's okay. obvious that if you cook something, there has been a drastic effect. And uh, industry was very, uh, I would say, enthusiastic about jumping on this concept because they knew that if they... Uh, promoted the existence of these thermal effects and, so to speak, highlighted them, this would result in standards of exposure that would give them a free hand to develop any application that they wanted. So to them, it was very, very important to promote that idea. But I would say that really industry has no interest in uncovering the effects of electromagnetic fields. The, its interest is in protecting their product. So whenever a scientist would come up with a non-thermal effect, uh, industry, so to speak, uh, specialists or more, more likely henchmen would find always something wrong with it. It could never be included for, for protection of, of the public. It was too vague. There was always something wrong with it, which really shows that if you don't want to see something, there are none so blind as those who will not see. So there have been hundreds of uh, researchers who have seen the effects both at low frequencies and at low fre at high frequencies. So covering the whole spectrum, there is no doubt that there are biological effects. And furthermore, I would add, there is no doubt that there are substantial health effects that we have been experiencing for a long time and that have been increasing our health bills. Well, thank you, and <clears throat> I couldn't agree more. Uh, and in fact, this is not a novel, a new strategy. They've they've copied the book or the the playbook from the tobacco industry. And I think it would be fair to say that cell phones, cell phones being a metaphor for all of EMF, are the new cigarettes essentially, because the tobacco industry used the same strategies, which is what you just described. That anyone who uh, seeks to expose the truth, whether it's a journalist or a researcher, is first of all, discredited. And then secondly, if they're researchers particularly, they are defunded, all their funding is removed. And then after that, <clears throat> people on their payroll, typically other scientists, uh, that rap, uh, radically outnumber that researcher, maybe 10 or 20 different scientists will be funded to publish opposing views to support the industry's interest. So this is a, a strategy that we is well recognized with tobacco and big pharma, but many people don't understand that this is also going on in the telecommunications industry. Yes, you are right. And uh, I've seen personally many examples of something like this. And the simplest thing to do for industry is to make sure that uh, no money is put into research. And also uh, one of their strategies is to patiently put people on committees. And usually the people that they promote as experts are individuals who don't really have 
direct experience of biology or medicine themselves. There are people who've read a lot of industry slanted documents and so are able to uh, uh, present a view of science that is a bit distorted. Okay, well, thank you. <clears throat> now that we have a place, laid a foundational background as to the reasons why many people may not be aware of the concerns that are here because they believe the public health authorities and the, the essentially the industry-funded researchers, uh, let's lay the groundwork for what you've been doing for the last few decades with respect to applying your relatively novel combination of physics and biology to help us understand the damage that the biological damage that's occurring from exposure to these fields. So why don't you walk us through your journey of when you first started working with the power companies and which what your observations were and what you discovered? Okay, so uh, initially I got into this field because a power utility asked me to design design an instrument that would measure electric magnetic fee and, and electromagnetic fields on workers. And so I, uh, I designed a dosimeter that was, uh, that was a very successful unit. And after that, I imagined that maybe this would be followed up with uh, basic work on the biology of the phenomenon. But uh, obviously, the uh, utility was not very interested in that. Essentially, uh, uh, about at that time, I went to McGill University at the Faculty of Medicine and started to do research. And I had a student in the lab who uh, was working on the toxicity of metals who came to me one day and said, why, why don't you give me a subject that would be a little more spectacular than the toxicity of metals, which is something that is a bit humdrum for me. So I said, if you're willing to take risks, we can go there. And uh, this student, this girl, started to work on magnetic fields. And the results that came up uh, and out of this uh, these experiments were quite spectacular. The effects were very, very strong. And from then on, I felt that I could not ignore this and that I had to bring this to the attention uh, of the world. Essentially, what we found is that uh, very small levels of magnetic fields, say at, at 60 hertz, the power frequency, mm -hmm. can have very, very drastic effects on cancer cells in culture. And it's not that the effect is hard to see. It's extremely easy to see. And that explains why 90% of people who run experiments like this see uh, corresponding effects. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the biggest drama is that when these problems were even mentioned in the literature, many biologists tackled this problem and within a few years, the answers were found. But the answers were never acknowledged. Saunders at Duke University in 1985 published an article that showed very clearly that these fields were able to suppress metabolism. And years later, in, uh, in, uh, in the 2000, early 2000s, I found exactly the same thing adding a few details that explained how physically this happened. But the true answers were found very, very quickly, but simply ignored and not acknowledged by industry in particular. Mm -hmm. So this information has essentially been suppressed, radically suppressed, and uh, replaced with the uh, propaganda that the industry wants us to hear so they could sell more of their product. 
It's essentially, uh, that's, a, that's a take home message. You can put in a bibliography that you will then afterwards supply for free to government organizations the articles that you want. You can filter in the ones that are favorable to your product and filter out the ones that you don't like for all sorts of pretexts and reasons. And this mm -hmm. is in great part the mechanism that has been used by industry, providing services free of charge on committees, providing bibliography reviews that are slanted at no cost to organizations that don't have the means to do that really independently. Okay. Well, let's dive a little deeper in your initial findings and observations and why you've been focusing on magnetic fields. So the, your initial research was on magnetic fields from the 60 hertz AC power supply. So would that mean that the magnetic fields were also pulsed at 60 hertz or were they static? No, they were uh, continuous sine wave oscillations at 60 hertz. But what I did that okay. was a bit unusual is that I took great care to eliminate all environmental fields from the experiments because as you know in a cell incubator you are likely to encounter fairly strong magnetic fields as a result of the heating of the electronics mm -hmm. and of the ventilator at the top of the unit so I had to put in around each cell culture uh, one inch of steel uh, essentially uh, shaped as a as a cylinder in order to eliminate these external fields and then add the fields that I mm -hmm. wanted to study. And under these good conditions with uh, cell cultures that were extremely tightly controlled, the effects of magnetic fields became entirely clear and very, very uh, spectacular. So I knew that there was something important happening. And maybe we can just go into the details of what effects you observed. I believe that was the chromosome damage. And uh, can you elaborate on that and how you determined it and what level of fields produce these effects? Okay, so uh, we of course studied across frequency and across intensity. And uh, we found that at levels of around 20 nanotesla, uh, which is uh, 0.02 microtesla, the effect started, was fully developed around 50 nanotesla, and I'm talking here for a field of 60 hertz. So those are fields in which you are about 50% of the time. And, 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 and uh, let, let, let's stop there because most people, with, if, if they're aware of magnetic fields and measuring them, they're using milligauss. So would the microtesla be equivalent to a milligauss? Uh, uh, one microtesla is 10 milligauss. Okay, so it's up by a factor of 10. Okay. Yes. So, but, but, but the fields I'm talking about that had these very big effects on cells are fields that you are exposed to and that you go in and out of every day. They are environmental fields. You find a lot of literature where people apply astronomical levels mm -hmm. of fields to biological systems. But what I found is that at environmental levels you have very strong effects and well well wouldn't let's stop there again because you're saying we go in and out of this these fields but you know from the measurements i've done and the levels you're describing i i would venture to say that the vast majority maybe over 90 percent of them never leave these fields <laughs> they're in them all that's continuously 
they don't go out. They're not sleeping in an environment or even working in one because it's hard. And if you're in a, if you're in an electrified home, it's just really hard to get low fields. But if you go away from all appliances and you go in your backyard and so on and so forth, then you will be in fields that are lower than those. But you're right. Those levels are low enough that we are subjected to them a large proportion of the time. So mm -hmm. even walking the streets, you will be in and out of these fields, uh, even out of your home and in, in, in an area that's practically well, unencumbered. Let's go back to your earlier comment that you said pretty much all the fields work similarly on biological mechanisms. So say you go outside and you're able to get a low magnetic field, you're still going to be exposed to the high frequency fields of microwaves uh, and cell phone radiation because this, the towers are pervasive and it's, it's, it's very, very difficult to avoid them in any urban area and even in most rural areas. That exposure outside, even though you have low magnetic fields, maybe unmeasurable, cause the same process problems because it's, 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 this, it's a similar pathology, similar mechanism. Yes, this is true. And unfortunately, uh, our environment is essentially being filled to the hilt with these disturbances of our, of our metabolism. And from point, uh, the point of view of industry, this is wonderful because this contamination being evenly spread and present everywhere, this becomes the new normal. In other words, mm -hmm. if you don't want to be caught intoxicating a population, expose them all at the same time so that there is no reference population. And of course, mm -hmm. cell phones in particular are so popular that they have essentially achieved this. You know, a rapid ride in exposure practically everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. And you're right, there is no reference population anymore. There did exist one about 70 years ago, about a century, about 100 years ago to 70 years ago was the um, electrification of most of the world, certainly in the United States, where from 1900 to 1950, most of the rural areas were not electrified. So, you know, Sam Milham, who I've also uh, interviewed, did some amazing investigative epidemiological work that showed radical differences in the incidence of almost every major disease between the rural population and the urban population between 1900 and 1950. And then once that urban po rural population became electrified, they, they, those, those disease rates converged to the point now where they're the same. I strongly believe that to be one of the most important observations of this century. The fact that we have modified our environment willingly and that we have integrated these negative health impacts without officially noticing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, some people have, but, the, you know, Wilhelm has, of course, been discredited and suppressed and industry wants to shut him up big time. And he is here, certainly he's getting on an age. He's in his 80s now. But he did some, some it was incredible pioneering work, work in the last century. So let's expand now a bit on yours because I'm really intrigued with the mechanism of action and and maybe you can describe how this magnetic field or at least your speculated proposed mechanism is with the production of energy through ATP and ATP synthase, synthase okay. specifically. Yes, so this enzyme is ATP synthase looks exactly like an electrical motor. 
In other words, it passes currents of protons through what is not a wire, but it's a water wire, a channel. And it, that's fairly long in terms of the, the, the protons have to go through about uh, 20 molecules of water through this channel. Now, water fundamentally is not very, very conductive electrically. But this molecule, ATP synthase, which is extremely ancient, common to all living systems, functions and creates mechanical work rotation that is used to generate ATP from ADP using this flow of protons. And at the very basic level, what magnetic fields can do is that they can change the transparency of the water channel to protons. Currents are reduced and you have less ATP. Now, the cell is extremely adept at, uh, I would say, at compensating for this because a cell cannot run out of ATP. So there's mm -hmm. this other enzyme, adenosine monophosphate protein kinase alpha, which controls all the processes of the cell to compensate for the action of the field. And mm -hmm. so, in essence, you know, in a very superficial way, you could say that, oh, there's not much happening. But when you impair the flow of protons through ATP synthase, what you do is that you increase what is called mitochondrial membrane polarization because mm -hmm. you're essentially blocking a process of trickling of protons through the enzyme. If you increase the polarization of the mitochondria by 14%, you will have a 70% increase in reactive oxygen species coming out of complex one, which mm. is the uh, leading edge of the oxidative phosphorylation mm -hmm. chain. So essentially, my explanation is that by physical action on water, you can change the transparency of the most critical enzyme in the human body, modulate the amount of ATP, mm -hmm. modulate, increase essentially the escape of electrons from complex one, thereby explaining practically all of the observations related to EMF. And of course, the moment ATP is perturbed in a cell, there's calcium signals being emitted all over the place because calcium is possibly mm -hmm. the most critical intracellular messenger. Yes, yeah. So in many ways, that lines up precisely with Martin Paul's work, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and maybe you can integrate those. And But before we d dive deep there, uh, just a little background of for those who are, haven't studied mitochondria, but the... Uh, the mitochondria, of course, are the energy producers in the body. They create the current and the energy that we require. But in, embedded in these mitochondrial membranes, the intermitochondrial membrane, are these electron transport chains. And uh, the 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 first one is the is the one you're referring to that that causes all this damage. And I wasn't aware that there was such a massive increase if if you depolarize the cell membranes. I mean, that's, but essentially that seems to be the mechanism is this excess oxidative stress, which Martin Paul says is the same thing. <clears throat> Ultimately, his, his belief is that it's activation of the 
voltage-gated calcium channels, which releases high amounts of intracellular calcium that, that causes this, uh, catalyzes this domino effect of increased oxidative stress. So can you reconcile his work and yours? And it seems like there's a synergy there and they're complementary uh, because they're essentially the same end result, but a little bit different mechanism. Yeah, you're right. The mechanisms are different because uh, at, at some point in time, the Bioelectromagnetic Society um, had a lot of annual meetings where the capability of, say, magnetic fields to um, influence uh, channels, for example, voltage-sensitive channels, was investigated in detail. And if you uh, know Abraham Liboff, he uh, had his cyclotron resonance theory that was also, uh, uh, I would say, uh, close to these investigations. But the truth is that from the physics point of view, it's very hard to explain how such low fields can actually alter the behavior of these channels. And it's also hard to explain how such low fields can alter the behavior of calcium ions in solution. Mm -hmm. And for me, uh, the answer is that it's not calcium ions on which you're acting directly. What you're mm -hmm. acting on are electrons and protons that are mm -hmm. a lot more sensitive to fields and because oxidative phosphorylation depends on the flow of electrons and protons, you have a very, very exquisite sensitivity to very low field le levels of biological systems. And when I talk about biological systems, it's not humans only, it's insects, it's mm -hmm. uh, vegetation, all living systems depend uh, on ATP synthase. Yeah, and so it's our gut microbes, our gut microbes too, which is yes. frequently overlooked. Yes. So uh, basically, fields act on the ability of protons to move from one molecule of water to another, in the case mm -hmm. of ATP synthase. And also, they alter the probability that an electron within a single molecule even can jump from one position to another. So this is the only, I would say, physical mechanism that can explain the observations of people like Belayev, who show that you have uh, reproducible effects of fields at extraordinarily low levels. You have free electrons and free protons. And the reasons why these uh, particles are free is that they function in biological system through a process called tunneling. And when a particle tunnels from one atom to another, in other words, either an electron or a proton tunnels from one molecule to another, it is vulnerable to vanishingly small fields. In other words, tunneling can be what we call in physics adiabatic. In other words, requires no energy. Mm -hmm. So to influence this flow of charges, you don't need to break molecules mm -hmm. as industry claims. All you have to do is to have a field that can alter their probability of jumping from one position to another. But but isn't ultimately the end biological results an increase in oxidative stress? And this oxidative stress is actually what causes the damage of breaking the bonds in the DNA, the cell membranes, and the proteins. It's It's not the 
uh, energy uh, in the electromagnetic frequency that it catalyzed the process, but it's a secondary damage from the oxidative stress. This, that was my understanding. I thought that's what you were saying too, but is that not correct? Yes. The energy of the field itself uh, is irrelevant in a sense. So mm -hmm. the idea that you have to reach ionization potential in order to create like an damage. an X-ray or gamma ray, right. Yes, it's, it's totally wrong. So you create damage because you're leaking electrons from the oxidative phosphorylation chain, but perhaps more significantly, by altering metabolism and the production of ATP, you mm -hmm. are confusing the programming of metabolism that has been developed over the last two billion years. Our species can evolve and is mm -hmm. successful in great part because we were successful at generating large amounts of ATP. If you mm -hmm. touch that, you're going to have disturbances of metabolism that will occur over uh, chronic exposures that will result in increases in the rate of diabetes. And that is probably true for all types of electromagnetic uh, radiation, be it mm -hmm. uh, sure. uh, power frequency, be it AM, uh, FM, be it television signals, all of these have in common the property that they have fields that can affect these charges. So the, uh, the view that these electromagnetic fields are innocuous to biological systems is simply plainly wrong. All right, I want to jump back to the, your mechanism again because there's a bit of an area of confusion. Uh, when <clears throat> you, you stated that when the these ATP synthase is exposed to these fields, it gets impaired uh, and it's, it's somewhat it, uh, throttles back. And as a compensatory result of that, the AMP kinase uh, is activated. Now, normally yes. when the AMP kinase is activated, that's a good thing. I mean, especially with a ketogenic diet, we want to suppress mTOR, we want to pre increase AMPK. So why is it a bad uh, result here? Just it's a bit confusing to me. Okay, yeah, AMPK was so to speak designed over two billion years to uh, handle what I would call the natural environment. What is our natural environment? It is essentially the regular inflow of chemicals that we call food, and how we handle these sugars and these nutrients in the body. And essentially, AMPK is able to turn on and off all sorts of processes within the cell. Mm -hmm. When you uh, inject an agent that has no chemical support whatsoever, and that can come about in a completely unpredictable fashion because you're close to a printer, or uh, because you're close to a cell phone, this is something that the enzyme has never been programmed to do. If we mm -hmm. spend another billion years in this type sure. of environment, yeah. it will change. But the enzyme doesn't know how to handle this. And uh, if you essentially destabilize the fine regulation that this mm -hmm. enzyme has established, you will have a, um, an imbalance between oxidative phosphorylation and glycolysis, which is, and mm. this balance is important in cancer, it's mm -hmm. vital in diabetes, and by the way, 
magnetic fields can stimulate some of the effects of drugs like metformin that are very, very mm -hmm. close to diabetes. So the link between the two is very, very easy to make. Okay, so it's it's an an imbalance in the in the very delicate sensitive feedback mechanism that's the key because norm as I said normally increased levels of of AMPK are considered beneficial. You want to activate AMPK, you want to suppress mTOR, but if you're just got your foot to the metal and you're <laughs> there's it's just going high continuously. That's not a good thing because it needs to have this fine tuned control which you lose or lose at least partially when you're exposed to the, to the EMF, uh, EMF, electromagnetic fields. Yes, that's a good description. In other words, if you uh, challenge important regulatory mechanisms of cells, mm -hmm. some things that are nefarious will come out. And mm -hmm. reducing the amount of ATP by itself, even not considering the regulation is also something that is damaging to the cell because so much of the biota is dependent like take reproduction for example or sperm mm -hmm. counts are going down mm -hmm. you know well documented 50 percent. they don't know why apparently well <laughs> if, if you look at, at at certain literature you find that magnetic fields are able to do that at the level 160 nanotesla very very convincingly mm -hmm. so essentially with these fields we are reducing the available atp but we can mm -hmm. survive that the amount of atp in our brains determines our intelligence so mm -hmm. we become a little bit less smart we become a little less fertile with the ntp studies that are coming out the national toxicology program we're also creating brain tumors what mm -hmm. else would we like to do add diabetes and was this a good idea electromagnetic fields should be confined and the natural environment is what biological systems are used to handling you change yeah. that in a drastic way for the pleasure of industry and there will be consequences all right well let's jump back to your research as far as i can tell most of your research was done on cells in vitro studies that's right so, so you haven't really expanded it yet to clinical evaluations, and I'm not even sure how you would, but you know, I'm sure you're a pretty creative guy. You can come up with some designs. But is there any, have you, do you have any plans of doing that, or has anyone else looked at and tried to validate your mechanism in, in a, um, at least in an animal model, if not a human? Uh, depending on the, uh, I would say, the mechanism that you're studying, Human experiments can be necessary or not. In some mm -hmm. cases, they are very, very critical. But when you're talking about a mechanism such as this one, in other words, impairing the uh, basic metabolism of a cell, I, I'm not very attractive to going into these costly studies. What I am doing currently is that I am trying to design a technique by which we could kill cancer cells using mm -hmm. magnetic fields. And so Interesting. If, if I can do this in vitro in a powerful way, then this should be transferable fairly easily in mm -hmm. animals if I can reproduce the exact. And in the past, I can tell you, we were able to kill cancer cells within one day or two simply wow. by selecting the correct magnetic field. 
All right, you'll have to elaborate on that because that's very intriguing. I didn't even realize that was part of your research. So how are you doing this? Is this a, um, a customized magnetic field that you determine based on some individual cellular characteristics or is it sort of a generic protocol that you're using? It is something that should work on most cells. We have tested this ability to suppress metabolism in cancer cells in at least two uh, cancer cells. And I feel that if we go to other cancer cells, it would still work. But of course, in order to produce enough data to mm -hmm. convince a very, very skeptical mm -hmm. audience that is huge in relation to cancer, you have to have um, a lot to offer. And when you have no funding, this takes a very mm -hmm. long time. So you understand that sure. I cannot deliver to you certainty or uh, you know mm -hmm. a, an exact technique, but we are working on this technique and we are optimistic. So it, can you disclose what the technique is, or is that proprietary? Or what it is is that if you look at cancer cells, uh, mm -hmm. they have one characteristic that is very peculiar, and. One of them is that they have crests of demand for ATP that are very, very high. Uh -huh. So at a certain point in time, they will need a lot. So if mm -hmm. you have the ability to suppress ATP synthase, which probably produces between 80 and 90% of the ATP in a cell, this cancer cell is not going to do very, very well. And if you add oh, a little okay. bit of glycolytic suppression in there, this cell okay. will have practically nowhere to go. All right, I, I understand the process now. So, but, but before we delve deeper into the process, uh, where does the other 10 or 20% of the ATP come from if it's not being generated by ATP synthase? From glycolysis. In other words, uh, the cell outside mitochondria does generate small amounts of mm -hmm. ATP. It's just okay. that they are not a big part of the budget. Okay. All right. So get, getting back here to your proposed cancer approach, it seems like it, it's an, an alternative, a far safer alternative to, to ionizing radiation, the radiotherapy that uh, is frequently being used. So you'd have to target this to the actually cancerous tu uh, tumors. It's not, it doesn't sound like it's something that could be used systemically because you wouldn't want to shut down the ATP synthase of non-cancerous cells. Well, it depends on how motivated you are. Uh, I, I did tell you, and I did measure already, that in some uh, cancer cell lines, the requirements of ATP are very, very high. In mm -hmm. some other cancers, they're not quite as high. And I'm talking about the crests of mm -hmm. ATP need. So uh, if you apply this systemically, you would have a larger effect on the cancer cells than you would have on normal cells that don't have present these crests of ATP consumption. But you have to, so, so this could be done either as a uniform form field all over the body, but it also could be focused because magnetic fields mm -hmm. can be geometrically shaped to have mm -hmm. certain sure. values in certain locations. And, and what type of fields are you talking about? Are they static fields and are they really high fields? Like, you know, they are not high fields. At the moment, we're using uh, lower frequency fields to achieve this. And it's, is it static or is it a pulse frequency? 
No, it's those are static fields, and they're applied okay. over long periods of time. So, in other words, oh, we're talking okay. about days. We're not talking about uh, very short exposures. Very interesting. Do you have any initial uh, data that you haven't published yet? Uh, of course, I have initial data, but it's not published yet because I don't want to publish it yet. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this is going to from, turn out to be a very expensive interview if I continue. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I won't pressure you for that, but it uh, it looks promising. Would that be a fair assessment? Yes. Uh, the, the thing is that I, I, I can tell you, I think that's that's not a very big secret. I applied for funding for this to the mm -hmm. Canadian Cancer Society in what is called their uh, innovation program. In other words, this is a program that is supposed to, um, to, uh, to promote new initiatives mm -hmm. that are not classic initiatives. Mm -hmm. And uh, that year there were 28 applications and my application came in 28th. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. So obviously, this that did, did not get funded, you can't imagine how difficult it is to go to a bunch of oncologists and say, we're going to cure cancer without touching the patient, without giving him a drug, with magnetic fields. You know, there's mm -hmm. a whole cultural gulf, you know, mm -hmm. a huge gulf of culture to reach. Mm -hmm. I would agree. It's a, it's definitely a, a big hurdle to overcome, and uh, I wish you luck in doing that because you know, they don't. Un Very few um, scientists really appreciate physics unless they're physicists like you. So it's just uh, it's a it's a very challenging discipline. I, in my view, probably one of the most challenging scientific disciplines there are the physics and math. Um, so. Getting back to the magnetic fields, though, not so much on the, the cancer therapy approach, which is exciting, and I thank you for sharing that, but on a preventive approach, because it sounds really, you know, your research, I mean, you're showing effects at about four nanotesla, which is like 0 0.04 milligauss. I mean, which is like most people hardly, unless they're outside, you know, you're never going to see that because it's, I've never seen, rarely ever seen it that low in in a house or a, a building. It just doesn't go that low. So I mean, this is essentially what people are exposed to in, indoors all the time. So you're seeing these effects. So what what are the practical um, implications of knowing the damage is occurring that we're suppressing ATP synthase by exposing ourselves to our field? I mean, what can we do to mitigate against the problem or the the potential damage? Well, uh, I think that the damage is, uh, is uh, serious to cells <clears throat> and is extensive. I, I believe, like Milham does, that uh, the, uh, the cancer rates have been influenced chronically by, mm -hmm. by these exposures. And what you can do to protect yourself is that, uh, even in, in a very conventional way, you could look at what the International Agency for Research on cancer says, and they confirm that they find a connection between childhood le leukemia and fields of, say, a hundred nanotesla. So, if you have children underage, make sure that they are not exposed to high magnetic fields a lot of the time. In other words, make sure that their beds are are not near a baseboard heater. 
And mm -hmm. if you can, get a, an inexpensive instrument and make sure that your young children are not at a three- or four-fold risk of leukemia because of this uncontrolled agent that we, we have in our houses. Yes, indeed. And would it be fair to say that uh, the magnetic fields are typically associated with the electric field, so that if you have a, an electric cord coming out of your wall or a transformer, I mean, you're going to have pretty high magnetic fields in addition to the electric field, so you want to minimize both. Yes. The, the easiest thing, of course, is, is to make a, a measurement with the small instruments. They're not expensive. Mm -hmm. The thing is that assessing sources, like a transformer, has a field that is the attempt to confine the field within the transformer, but the field of a transformer usually goes down as one over distance cube, which is fairly rapid, whereas a fluorescent light, uh, which is a linear source, goes one over distance squared. And mm -hmm. so, uh, depending on the type of source that you have, you know, uh, it, it's fairly complex to calculate because you have, have so many wires around you. But Yeah, well, you know, that's not been my observation. That's what the theory is. But it, it, let me just translate that transformers are also called charging devices. So if you're going to charge your cell phone, as almost everyone does, it's the rare individual who doesn't, and you plug that cell phone charger into the wall, I don't think I've ever seen a grounded cell phone charger. They're all two prongs, so they're not grounded, which massively worsens the field. And most of them are several hundred volts per meter, and that doesn't go down to relatively safe levels until you're a yard three feet away, three feet before it goes down below 10 volts per meter. Oh, I was talking about power utility transformers, not the ones. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Sorry, we we, we had a miscommunication there. I, that's, that's right. What I think of transformers that you know, we're, most of us are not exposed to those transformers. I mean, a few of us are foolish enough not to appreciate the danger, but for but we're all exposed to the the transformers. Pro probably everyone watching this has 10, 20, 40, even fifty of them in their house. That's true. And those transformers are made to be very, very compact. They don't have any shielding to make them very, very light. So essentially, mm -hmm. they leak power because for the devices that they are powering, power leakage is not very important. Compactness mm -hmm. is important at that point. So it's an engineering design based on the false uh, information that these fields mm -hmm. spewing into the environment, it doesn't matter. So what you need is a small transformer of that type that outputs a DC signal, which of course does not mm -hmm. oscillate, and that is well shielded or far enough from you. So one simple method is to plug it very, very far and lengthen the wire to, divide, to the device that you're using. Well, still stay away from it and make sure your device is in airplane mode and not have Bluetooth activated or Wi-Fi. I mean, there's. Oh, all I was talking metal. again about a radio rather than the cell phone. Oh, okay. So, if you have a radio, <laughs> most elect all electronics requires DC anyway. Your computer doesn't want AC. You practically have mm -hmm. nothing in your life that requires AC fields. So, in principle. Mm -hmm. Power utilities could distribute DC power everywhere and eliminate this leukemia and this cancer problem entirely. And now, yeah, I would agree. This is possible because we have semiconductors who can transform 
DC, from a high DC voltage to a low DC voltage. We didn't have that in the times of Westinghouse. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so let's expand on that a bit because there are, uh, there's an increasing percentage of the public who is adopting solar energy, which I think is a great transition, a clean source of energy, non-polluting, of course. Uh, but the problem is it is it creates DC energy. Uh, and we all pretty much have AC. So you have to have these inverters and the inverters uh, in the process of converting that energy, they create dirty electricity, electromagnetic interference, which causes a huge problem. It can be remediated somewhat, but it's a challenge. Uh, so why don't you discuss the, if someone was building a new house uh, and wanted to start from scratch, I mean, are there, is it possible? I mean, I, I know in some rural areas where electricity isn't, isn't an option that they, they have these options, uh, these alternatives, but, you know, you need like a DC refrigerator and a D, all your appliances would have to be DC. So is it, is it technically possible to create a house in the 21st century that just runs on DC? You will find all sorts of hurdles everywhere because all appliances are using AC power simply because of this trick that was found by Westinghouse that you could transform uh, voltage levels either from high to low or low to high in a very efficient way with transformers. So this trick, which is ingenious, has essentially uh, invaded the whole of industry and practically everything that we find except the electronics mm -hmm. uses as input AC power. So a person who would like to avoid AC fields faces a substantial technical challenge, but you're right. The, the, um, the, the bringing about of these clean energies, in particular solar energy, could create an incentive to have an electrical network that would be more based on DC, ultimately eliminating AC entirely. There are many advantages to a DC power network. The big problem is that we have been committed for 100 years to mm -hmm. AC installations. Yes, that is a that's, that's a huge hurdle to overcome, but it is technically possible. It sounds like from your understanding of the process it to do in it fact, individually, it's better. It would be more economical, and you would save twenty percent of the energy budget. This transition could not be made overnight, but mm -hmm. really, utilities should start making it now because. In um, a power industry where you don't rely on huge power stations anymore, the fact that individual producers or individual small sources don't have to synchronize together as they do in AC, they just have to adjust voltage levels would be a very substantial mm -hmm. advantage. And you wouldn't need yeah. uh, these, these losses when you, you use a computer you feed it AC power that is transformed to DC. And right, this transformation absolutely. is expensive. Yeah, there's obviously loss there. And it's the same thing when you're generating the energy from converting it from the sun, you, you're losing 10, 20% in, in the conversion process. So uh, I'm also curious, I suspect I know the answer, but I don't not, I just like you to confirm it. Uh, it would seem that if you were using DC as your source and you didn't have the AC and, you, and your electric wires transmitting the power throughout your house were just DC, 
then there really wouldn't be much electric fields emanating from that. And, and the concern that, you know, that I view as a result of interacting with many building biologists that the electric fields coming from the wiring in the bedroom at night is one of the most pernicious threats to health would, would not be an issue. You wouldn't have to turn off your power at night because there's essentially wouldn't be much of a field there. Is that correct? The thing is that the, the static fields are not really biologically active. And the reason why they're ah. not biologically active is that the Earth has a static magnetic field of 50 microtesla, 500 mm -hmm. milligauss, which has been there forever. Mm -hmm. And we have outside an electric field static that varies very, very slowly according to the weather and whether there's a thunderstorm. But it's not something that varies 60 times per second. Mm -hmm. So essentially, DC fields are biologically acceptable because our environment is made with them. Okay, good. And just to go back to your cancer research, those, those are not static fields. Those are uh, pulsed fields? Those are AC okay. fields right. that, I'm, that I'm using. Okay. Yeah. All right, good. So, yeah, so because otherwise it wouldn't make sense. Okay, so it's pulsed fields has some new exciting innovations. I that was, that was a nice pearl out of this interview that I wasn't expecting. Yes. <laughs> well, you know probably that pulsed fields have a power that is specific to them because mm -hmm. we know for uh, uh, the regeneration of bone, for example, that mm -hmm. pulse magnetic fields have been sure. used very successfully. And uh, we know that from cell phones, we do get these pulses of radiation that are very effective at creating uh, effects in electrosensitive people and are also very effective at increasing the rate of diabetes in populations. So sure. these small fields have virtues of their own as well. So, and these are called PEMF devices, and there's a large number of them on the market. Uh, and the therapy that's emanating from them, is it is it both electrical and magnetic pulses, or is it just primarily magnetic? There have been uh, two versions of this. Originally, the first people who uh, looked for biological stimulation were using electric fields. But magnetic fields have substantial advantages because they penetrate the body fairly easily compared to electric mm -hmm. fields. So slowly, okay. uh, researchers gravitated to using, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, magnetic fields. You have the same thing now in very, very trendy new developments where people inject in, intracranially uh, DC fields into their brains. You can do the same thing with magnetic fields. So there's a great deal of commonality in terms of the means, either electric or magnetic fields, to induce currents in the body. They amount to the same thing if they're done uh, in the same, uh, with the same intent. And the therapeutic PEMF devices, th these are alternating, switching? Uh, usually those are, are uh, yes, okay. they're designed to, to enrich in bandwidth, the signal that is going into the biological system because they're meant to alert, so to speak, biological okay. systems that the change is needed. So okay. having pulses creates a wide bandwidth that solicits mm -hmm. a lot of biological systems simultaneously. Okay, great. Well, this is a lot of exciting information. I, uh, we got more than we bargained for with uh, inviting you to, to, <laughs> to dialogue.
but it's really exciting. And I think ultimately the end result is, of course, what we know all along is that you, I mean, there's certainly some potentially useful research that you're going to come up with, but we know now, I mean, the research, there's thousands and thousands of studies that have been published and mostly suppressed that this is, it is dangerous to be exposed to conventional EMF fields. I mean, there's just no question. So we need to lower our exposure as much as possible. And, you know, the devil's in the details and it really takes a significant commitment. You can't do this frivolously and you have to understand that the danger is there. And in my experience, being naive and thought that I understood this and I was foolish, but I didn't really get it until I actually picked up a device to measure it, and I could, and I could somehow, and I could actually discern the feel because you can't feel these feel. I mean, most people can't. Three percent of the people can. You know, we are electro electromagnetically hypersensitive, but most of us can't. And because we can't see, hear, or feel it, we just don't think it's causing a problem. It's just it's just the same way that uh, ionizing radiation, the gamma rays or X rays, we wouldn't feel until it was too late and we were dying or dead. That's right. So we have lost the ability. You know, sharks, you know, have are very electrosensitive. When a shark bites you at the last moment, he's being guided <clears> by <throat> by electric fields around you. And uh, he's not guided by his eyes anymore. And most primitive animals had an electric sense. It's just something that we have lost to the profit of something else. Yeah, I mean, we've gotten gained other advantages, but you know that's certainly one that we lost too. Uh, so, I mean, it's all it's the the devil's in the details, and I really thank you for your research. Um, are there any closing comments or points you'd like to emphasize before we sign off? Well, uh, you know, the, the 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 job that we all have to do is to protect ourselves, and perhaps mm -hmm. uh, you know even more to convince the engineers to protect us because mm. they are the ones producing the devices. So ultimately, we will have to convince them and the standard bearers that these fields are dangerous. Otherwise, it will always be an individual effort, which will be very, very difficult to sustain. Well, fortunately, I can play a process in that. And uh, there's a, a, an electrical engineer, Alistair Phillips, who runs Power UK in in. England and I'm UK. You might sure you might be familiar with him, and and uh, he's actually in the process, based on my prompting, to uh, contact a number of companies that make these transformers because you can, it is like virtually impossible to find a plug-in transformer, not an electrical power utility one, but a plug-in transformer to power your cell phone or your computer to find a shield, a grounded shielded transformer. They just don't right. make them anymore, and they're switching. So. You know, they, they, we can go back to the old ones, and if there's a demand for it, as I hope to create, then th the companies will produce them. And it's kind of a selfish mode because I want them, you know, and, you know, we can't afford to make them ourselves, but these big companies can do it. And if there's a market for it and people are willing to pay for it because they know it's it it, it can cause harm to them and, and that we can find a safer alternative, then there's a demand for it and then they'll make them. So it's just a matter of, of creating awareness among the public. There should be in a green rather than a black box. Nah, I like that. <laughs> That's really good. That's really good. Yeah, a green instead of a black box. That is really brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, and thank you for all your research. This has been a, a real delight to connect with, uh, you know, a solid researcher like you who's got some novel ideas and is making some big headway up there and, you know, and really have the courage to go on your convictions and really explore the details. 
uh, independently because it's, it's, you know, most preachers don't do what you're doing. I mean, you've, you're creating a target on your back, you know, and it's, it's, you know, my, my uh, hats off to you for your courage to do that. And, you know, the tenacity uh, to, to continue with your efforts because you're certainly going upstream. Thank you very much.